You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about Amplified Musculoskeletal Pain Syndrome, or AMPS. Joining me from the Division of Rheumatology at CHOP is Dr. David Sherry and Dr. Sabrina Gamuka. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. So let's start with a bit of pathophysiology. So in AMPS, the degree of pain that's experienced by a child is more intense than one would normally expect. So help me figure out where in the neuromuscular system is the short circuit that causes this? That's a good question, and it's not actually known. The way we conceptualize it, however, is that there is a stimulus that is then taken either at the spinal cord level or at the central level, and then that stimulus is reflected or amplified back to the body, which then goes back up to the spinal cord or brain, and then is bounced back to the body and then back up to the brain. And so it's kind of like a speaker and a microphone that you put too close together, you Mm -hmm. get that squealing. And so even though that's a very soft sound that goes into the microphone, it becomes so loud, you have to leave the auditorium. That's the way we envision this, where these kids with just a light touch or just the sensation of swallowing or the sensation of their stomach whether the sensation of, of any you know, light going into their eyes is then amplified to a point that becomes very painful, and not only very painful, but very disabling. Because in amplified pain, we have uh, disproportionate pain, but also usually disproportionate disability. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So it's sort of a circuit, is what you're describing, that there's feedback going in both directions. A vicious cycle. So what are the most common causes of AMPS? So I think in terms of thinking about, you know, the causes of amplified pain, uh, in general, there's probably a complex interplay between genes and environment. Uh, The biopsychosocial model uh, is probably the best explanatory model that exists. Uh, But that being said, uh, you know, looking at our patient population that we see here uh, at CHOP, there are probably a couple of causes of pain that we see in children that we treat with amplified pain. Uh, The first is that uh, a lot of patients will have family members with chronic pain syndromes, like fibromyalgia syndrome, so genetics probably plays a role, uh, but there's more that we need to, uh, you know, research to understand that better. Uh, We do also see preceding uh, illnesses or physical trauma in kids who develop amplified pain, uh, so that might sort of act as an initial trigger in terms of causing the nervous system to go haywire. Uh, It's also interesting to note that a lot of kids with amplified pain uh, do tend to be female and tend to have onset of their pain during uh, puberty, so uh, the role of hormones uh, needs to be further explored uh, in the development of amplified pain. And then lastly, and probably most importantly, stress. Um, The mind-body connection is something that um, is very real and very important to the development of amplified pain, Uh, and so we do spend a lot of time uh, addressing the role of stress uh, uh, in the development of AMPS. So of those different causes that you just described, it sounds like most of those aren't modifiable, right? In terms of genetics or an accident, you can't predict those things, but the stress component sounds like it's the one where potentially we might be able to do some interventions to prevent amplified pain. 
Yes, definitely. So we definitely like to tell our patients that we wish we could take stress away, but stress will always be there and stress can be good as well. Um, there's definitely good stress, uh, like going off to college, um, buying a new car. And so stress will always be there, but how uh, a child reacts to stress um, and adapts to stress uh, is definitely modifiable and something that um, we can teach those skills to children with amplified pain in terms of treating their pain. So what, what might a patient with amplified pain look like or how might they present in the primary care setting? The most typical patient would be a pre-adolescent to adolescent girl uh, who is um, actually a very nice kid. A kid <laughs> just like we were in junior high school and high school. Right. You know, we make good grades, we are perfectionistic, we we go around meeting other people's needs rather than our own. They mm -hmm. tend to be helpers, nurturers, the kids that are more mature than the other kids, the kids that then take on all of this, and they end up internally suffering a lot for that role. Right. I mean, if you think about it, like school itself is a very abnormal stress that we don't put ourselves through as adults. Mm -hmm. I don't try to learn French. My wife doesn't try to learn algebra, but these kids are supposed to be really good right. at French, history, physics, you know, pottery, poetry, and, you know, mm -hmm. but that's not what we do in the adult world. Right. And so they have all these school stresses plus the social stresses and if I can say, stupid Instagram, <laughs> you know, stupid social media where, you know, oh, you know, Betty likes Bob, and then that's all over the school in two milliseconds, right. and Betty doesn't even know Bob, you know? <laughs> And right. so all of that stuff that, that, that you see, that the, that's the way they present. Then they have this increasing pain that gets worse over time. They have normal uh, labs, and they have a plethora chance of other symptoms where they um, are fatigued, they're dizzy, they can't see straight, they have head pain, they have abdominal pain, they have menstrual cramps that are incapacitating, they have just, it goes on and on and on. What you just described is that the presentation can be very variable and there may not be diagnostic tests that point you in this direction. So how do you diagnose it? It's a clinical diagnosis, like all clinical diagnosis. It's by exclusion and inclusion. It's not just a wastebasket. Oh, it's, you know, it's not what right. you think of. There's very characteristic things. Many of these kids will have allodynia or tenderness to a, a non-painful stimulus. Mm -hmm. Especially, there's, there's different forms of amplified pain. It can be very localized. It can be localized to the point that you have CRPS, complex regional pain syndrome, or what used to be called reflex sympathetic dystrophy, where your hand or foot is cold and blue and swollen. I mean, that's pretty easy. That's a right. no-brainer. But for the kids who have, who don't have that, and it's, you know, they twist their ankle, and then it's worse, and it never can get better, and they're in a boot, and it never gets better. You say, well, this is not healing right. This isn't following the right trajectory. Yeah. It can be total body. And, and in addition to the allodynia, they have, uh, uh, they have a really interesting incongruency, usually between their pain report and their affect. Mm -hmm. They're calm they're quiet and their pain is 10 out of 10 or 8 out of 10 or it can be 12 out of 10 right. and people don't believe them and they're really afraid that you know they other people think that they're faking and they're not um, and and so you have this this discordance between the way they look and what they're reporting and the fact they can't go to school or they can't they can see but they can't read and all these other uh, symptoms that you know mount up uh, in them. And
And so that's sort of the pattern that we see. There's some specialized testing we do for the kids with back pain that you can see if it's organic or non-organic. And I think it's also really important to note that while there are criteria that exist for conditions uh, labeled as juvenile fibromyalgia syndrome, uh, I think uh, kind of limiting the use of those criteria to patients with chronic musculoskeletal pain um, would really be sort of doing an injustice to our patient population. Uh, you know, the sort of the spectrum of pain presentations that we see are such that not all children meet criteria for juvenile fibromyalgia mm -hmm. syndrome, but definitely have chronic pain that would benefit from our treatment approach. And so uh, I think there's definitely room for improvement in terms of criteria that exist. Uh, you know, I agree with Dr. Sherry that, you know, key things would be things like allodynia, um, disproportionate pain, disproportionate disability, and lack of response to pain medications. And so, uh, you know, definitely kind of thinking about those things in patients that you're evaluating uh, for potential uh, AMPs are helpful in terms of making that diagnosis uh, and just kind of keeping an open mind and not limiting yourself uh, to the use of existing criteria. That's really helpful. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, you've both touched on a point, which is that many children with AMPS and their families have had their chronic pain dismissed, sometimes by their social supports and community or their medical providers. So when you see them as they come to you, how do you regain their trust so you can move forward with a treatment plan, often when there is this psychological component that might trigger or exacerbate their, their AMPS? Well, how we try to regain their trust, and that's quite an attempt, is one, to listen to them, to hear their story, to let them know that we've reviewed their chart, we know their labs, we know what they've been through, that we believe them, that there is a mechanism for the pain, and we draw a model of the pain to make it very tangible and real and why that's being amplified, and that we um, then can um, have a plan to work on the different nerves that are involved, the pain nerves with exercising and, all, and desensitization, and the stress nerves by uh, using cognitive behavioral therapy and other forms of counseling. So you touched a little bit on some of the aspects of your program. So what does your treatment program entail, and how successful have you been in restoring children to their prior state of well-being? It depends on the child on how much therapy they need, both uh, psychotherapy and physical and occupational therapy. Uh, some kids, once they know that walking on their foot is not going to damage it, can go out and walk and get better. Uh, some kids, there's not a lot of uh, stress overlay. Some kids, there's a ton of stress overlay. They need much more of that. Uh, other kids need a much bigger dose of physical and occupational therapy. And what we do here in our formal program here is six hours a day, every day, for two, three, four weeks, however long it takes, to restore function to get these kids going. Our goal is to reestablish function first, and with that, usually the pain will dissipate, but then also really look at the psychodynamics involved in getting those addressed, whether they be in the child, in the family, in the parents, whatever, or another sibling. The outcomes are actually quite good. We published in a Complex Regional Pain Syndrome 103 kids that 95 were cured. I mean, it just went away. At five years later, 88% were fine. 
We published on fibromyalgia kids who have widespread diffuse pain, 64 kids that start off at a pain of 6.6. In three weeks, their pain went to 2.5. One year later, it was 2.0. A third of those kids had absolutely no pain. You know, about half of those kids had less than one out of 10 pain. Well, if you have less than one out of 10 pain, all of those kids were fully functional. They could run on a treadmill at a 90% of what their normal age kids uh, could run on a treadmill. And so their endurance was quite durable. So six hours a day sounds like a lot of physical therapy or any therapy to me, but as you stated before, as part of the diagnosis, these children aren't able to function at their normal level. So they're not going to school anyway, right? So the physical therapy becomes their their sort of school, their job um, in their rehab. Correct. They, they, we, work their buns off. (laughs) So on a more serious note, I guess, we know that often adults with fibromyalgia get prescribed an opioid. So how much of an issue are opioids in polypharmacy among children with chronic pain? Mm -hmm. So this was exactly the question that I wanted to explore uh, as part of my master's uh, of science and clinical epidemiology. And so our group uh, used healthcare claims data to look at children and adolescents who had diagnosis codes for fibromyalgia syndrome to explore uh, whether they were prescribed uh, an opioid medication. Uh, I think there is probably enough literature to suggest that uh, opioid uh, use for chronic pain uh, is not uh, the best solution. Uh, And so from that data, about 20% of the kids who had at least one code for fibromyalgia syndrome uh, did receive a prescription for an opioid. So we do know uh, that providers are nonetheless prescribing opioid medications for kids uh, with uh, chronic musculoskeletal pain. Uh, Along those lines, uh, about a quarter of the kids in our cohort also uh, experienced minor polypharmacy, uh, meaning they had, uh, you know, anywhere from one to four medications on file at any given time. Also pain. uh, Yes, yeah, yes. Uh, Medications for pain or pain-related symptoms. And so, you know, I think there definitely is uh, probably still uh, an overuse of pharmacologic agents for uh, amplified pain. Uh, and then interestingly, when I started working in the Center for AMPS, I was uh, anticipating that our patients would be coming to us on opioid medications, but surprisingly, that's not the case. And so mm-hmm. I really spent some time asking patients and their families, you know, were you ever given an opioid? Um, I see you have, you know, Tylenol with codeine on file in your chart. Tell me more about that. And, you know, I sort of was surprised to learn from patients directly that they recognize that these medications don't work well for them. Uh, specifically, I can think of one patient who said, sure, I tried that. It knocked me out and put me to sleep. But when I woke up, my pain was still there. And so I think if we sort of um, really include uh, patients and their families in research um, and in our studies, uh, that will get a little bit more of a sense, uh, you know, of what uh, patient preferences are for uh, their treatment outcomes. And, you know, from listening to patients, we sort of know uh, anecdotally that opioid medications um, aren't, you know, the catch-all sort of solution for chronic pain. And that's good for providers to know in primary care who, like you said, these children may be saying that their pain is 12 out of 10 and they think that they need something that's stronger and keep upping their pain medications, but that that may not be effective at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they're uh, you know, as Dr. Sherry kind of pointed out, a lot of different, um, uh, as Dr. Sherry pointed out, there are a lot of different treatment outcomes that we need to think about when uh, assessing for 
uh, amplified pain and treating amplified pain, um, definitely uh, mental health, physical health um, are probably even more important than you know what the pain score is that day. And I also was really interested to learn about your research in patient and parent resilience and how this can inform treatment and maybe even prevention. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so again, that was a question that sort of was driven from my clinical experience. And so a lot of the research that has been done um, in uh, chronic pain in childhood is focused on the negative etiologic factors that might cause pain. Um, But this sort of got me thinking as, well, what are those positive adaptive traits that allow one child with AMPS to be a high-functioning patient? Um, How can we harness those positive traits uh, and teach them to uh, another amplified pain patient who's quite disabled from their pain? And that's sort of where resilience as, you know, a potentially adaptive um, trait that can allow kids to... uh, continue on a healthy trajectory despite experiencing chronic pain sort of came to the fore. And so, you know, I first needed to start with just sort of um, demonstrating that my hypothesis that uh, kids with chronic pain have low resilience is in fact true. And so we looked at um, 26 patients and one of their parents, um, and they completed a series of patient-reported outcome measures uh, and a resilience measure uh, called the uh, Connor Davidson Resilience Scale 10 item. Uh, And in fact, we did find that patients uh, had a lower mean resilience scores than what's been reported in populations of healthy teens as well as teens with other chronic medical problems like cancer and type 1 diabetes uh, and inflammatory bowel disease. And so this is, you know, I think um, something that's great because resilience is mutable and is something that can be taught. And resilience training uh, interventions have been shown to be effective for children with other chronic medical problems in terms of uh, reducing psychological distress. Uh, and what's really nice about resilience training interventions are that um, they're brief. They can be delivered um, either via telephone or on Skype. And so I think, you know, if we can apply resilience training interventions uh, to our patients with amplified pain and show that it works, um, that would provide a potentially um, widely accessible um, CBT-based, uh, you know, training intervention, um, which I think would be great because, you know, really we have access to amazing resources here at CHOP, but not um, not all centers across the country have access to that. So. Uh, in whatever ways that we can learn to sort of um, adapt what we do to a more accessible format um, will definitely be a benefit. And I wonder in terms of prevention, when we were talking about the typical patient for AMPS, whether or not some resilience training could could maybe mitigate the effects of their disease process early on. Definitely, and I think what's probably different about resilience and the construct of resilience in chronic pain is that one can hypothesize that resilience plays an important process um, when it comes to the pathophysiology of the condition. Um, And so, you know, I think as much as resilience can be a process to adapting to chronic pain, probably um, having baseline low resilience can lead to the development of amplified pain itself. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, I think it's a little harder to Uh, think of a scenario in which uh, resilience might lead to the development of cancer or type 1 diabetes, for example. And so uh, I think it is much more complex uh, than perhaps, uh, you know, the role that it plays in other chronic medical problems, but also allows then for potential opportunity to, again, harness resilience to even prevent amplified pain. So the rates of suicidal ideation and completed suicide among adolescents recently has become a hot topic in pediatrics and especially in primary care. 
Are adolescents with chronic pain at a higher risk for suicidal thoughts or actions? We've actually done a study on looking at that, and, and I'm not sure that they're at higher, but they're significant. And we've had younger kids, not even adolescents, but we've had kids under the age of you know, 10 who have attempted suicide. And so it's very real. It's something that needs to be addressed in this population. Uh, in addition to suicide, I think that these kids are at risk for other stress-related illnesses, mm -hmm. such as anorexia, such as chronic abdominal pain, chronic head pain, um, cutting, acting out, doing uh, risk-taking behaviors. So it's not just limited to suicide. We need to look at the whole spectrum of how adolescents and children uh, manifest stress in their life in non-constructive, unproductive ways. Mm -hmm. So understanding that not all primary care pediatricians will have access to a referral site like yours, what tips can you offer them for management of these patients in primary care? The first thing I preach that it's really difficult in medicine and in parenthood to seem to do nothing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's it, and people say they talk about benign neglect. It's not. It's therapeutic neglect. Right. We say, I'm sorry, you've got this new symptom. You've got this. Okay, you're okay. Fine. We're not going to send you to the pulmonary person for your shortness of breath going up and down the stairs. We're not going to send you to cardiology. We're not going to send you to ophthalmology because you you get vision changes. You know, intermittently, right. and and to demedicalize these kids. These kids are hugely over-medicalized, not to treat every symptom with the prescription, mm -hmm. to resist saying, well, okay, we'll just watch that, and to uh, let them know what they're doing and then get them started in physical therapy and, more importantly, uh, put stress on the table and say, look, you know, that's part of who you are and that we need to, to deal with that and to link them up with a uh, mental health specialist. We covered a lot, and there's certainly a lot more that we could talk about with this topic, but give us sort of the top three things that you want primary care doctors to know about amplified pain. I think in terms of the role of the primary care provider, you know, probably the most uh, important thing that can be done is an you know, appropriate recognition um, and timely diagnosis of amplified pain. And then the second, uh, you know, thing that we would definitely recommend would be, again, normalizing the role of stress. Um, the mind-body connection plays a very important role, and uh, that does not mean that the patient is crazy and that the pain is in their head. The pain is very real. Um, and so spending the time to really normalize uh, the role of psychological counseling uh, will help kids get the right treatment as well. Uh, and then really establishing that the focus of treatment overall is not going to be on getting that pain to a zero as fast as possible, but um, restoring both physical and mental health. Um, those are the things that we want kids to focus on. And so um, prioritizing function above everything else. Great. So for those who are local and can benefit from your clinic, tell us about how we can refer to you and where they, they can find you. Well, we have the Amplified Musculoskeletal Pain Clinic that uh, both uh, Dr. Knuke and I attend uh, on patients. And in that clinic, they also will see the psychologist, and they may or may not see physical and occupational therapist as well. Um, and uh, the number to call is 215-590-7234. Um, and when they get that number, what they are then next to do is they have a whole lot of forms and uh, questionnaires that they fill out uh, through MyChop and that assists us in taking care of these kids in a timely uh, and uh, complete fashion. 
Um, it doesn't take too long to get into our clinic. Uh, there are, it's a little bit of a waiting list, maybe two months is what we're, our waiting time is now. And if a patient has an acute onset and are very disabled, they can always call us up and talk to us about it. And we, and there are times that we, we can uh, facilitate uh, an appointment for an individual child. And I think the good news is, is that probably um, only about a third of patients that we evaluate in clinic um, need to come through our intensive rehabilitation program. And so uh, there's a lot that we can do in terms of treating patients on an outpatient setting. Great. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for all that you do for these patients and for teaching us a little bit more about AMPS and what you're doing on the research side and clinically. Great. I, I do want to add one thing. Yeah. These are great kids. I mean, these are kids who are really in severe pain. They're very dysfunctional. We can turn things around and get them back to where they used to be. It's very gratifying. And, and again, these are just great kids. They're just like we were. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's a great way for us to close. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.